Well, hello. My name is Angele Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Should I greet you with murder faces? That is cringy, but funny at the same time. Thank you, member supporters. I have those. David, Brooke, Sandy, Mark, part of the Buy Me a Coffee Club. What do they call that in the NPR world? Sustainers. It supports the show directly. And I set a new goal to reach $300 a month. Then I will do a monthly live stream with all of you. I have a stream yard. Oh, I have so many subscriptions. It's ridiculous. You subscribe to the YouTube channel. I post the show there and whatever is to come. I do have some plans underway. It is the one-year mark for when I dropped the first show trailer, August 3rd. The podcast didn't officially launch until October, but we will celebrate that too. So follow the show on all socials, all linked at Crime of the Truest Kind. All the shows are there, all the show notes, the merch store. One more thing, August is Listener Appreciation Month. All new ratings and reviews that go up on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Audible, CastBox. I did discover I have a CastBox. I couldn't find where the reviews were, but go and leave one if you use that. Five stars with something nice to say about the show. You qualify to enter the drawing for a super duper prize pack. I will share that on Instagram what that is. I know this is very radio and we sound like game show hosts. I mean, after all, I have been in radio for 20 plus years, so it's bound to rub off. All right, that's enough of that business to borrow a phrase from True Crime Garage that I still listen to. Today, we travel to Framingham, Massachusetts, and the story of Laura Jane Rosenthal. We read the headlines. The horrifying story of America Thayer, murdered by someone who was supposed to love and protect her. Isn't that what a partner is? Or should be? Should be. That is the most basic standard by which we could hope someone would operate by. The person that killed America Thayer was someone she had been having trouble with. She was a 55-year-old woman, a hard-working mother, who was gruesomely murdered in the middle of the day on a city street in Minnesota. She was attacked, stabbed, and decapitated. Those words are not so salacious and sexy in a true crimey meme kind of way. It is vicious. And to know that someone recorded it and posted it on social media is, well, unforgivable. But it is the world we live in. Everyone is motivated by clicks and views and going viral. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. One in two female murder victims and one in 13 male murder victims are killed by an intimate partner. So before I go any further, I want to say this. If you are experiencing violence in your relationship, physical abuse, or whether you are experiencing psychological, emotional, sexual, financial, or social abuse, help is available. If someone is controlling your actions, manipulating your finances as a way to control your behavior, or gaslighting, that means making you feel that what you are experiencing is not really happening and it's all in your head, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to talk about what you are experiencing. 
And at-home abuse isn't always just between partners. It can be between children and parents, siblings, relatives. Some abusers also use children, pets, and other family members as emotional leverage for manipulation. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Support resources and advice for your safety at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. You can text START to 88788, and the chat feature is open at their site at thehotline.org. I rarely give disclaimers on this show, but on today's episode, we talk about infant loss and domestic violence. Framingham is a town in the Metro West area, 22 miles from Boston. It's situated halfway between Boston and Worcester. As of 2017, the estimated population was about 72,000 people. Back in 1995, when Laura was murdered, population was about 65,000 people. Let's learn about Framingham. Route 9 through Framingham is a very well-known strip of retail. Framingham is famous for Shoppers World. One of the first modern malls, built in 1951 and demolished in 1994. Nearby Natick has the collection. Very fancy, bougie. You can even live in the mall. I'm serious. Framingham State University, with its 73-acre campus, has the Henry Whitmore Library, with over 200,000 volumes, access to over 70,000 electric journals, archives, and special collections. That is a lot. It was named a Green College by the Princeton Review in 2010 and 2011. It was one of 22 schools in Massachusetts to receive that distinction, and only one of 311 nationwide. It was named to the list again in 2013. Some well-known alumni of Framingham State, Krista McAuliffe, class of 1970. She was the Concord, New Hampshire teacher who became part of the Teacher in Space program. She died in the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster on January 28, 1986. Many students across the country and the world watched it live as it happened. There is a memorial on campus in Krista's honor. Ruth Graves Wakefield is an alumna of Framingham State. And why is she important? Well, I will tell you. American chef best known as the inventor of the Toll House cookie, the first chocolate chip cookie. She went on to teach high school home act in Brockton, Massachusetts. Olivia A. Davidson attended when it was still the state normal school. Graduating with a degree in teaching in 1881 as one of six honor students. She taught in the Worcester Public Schools and because she was a black woman, the city's wealthy elite protested her appointment. Olivia A. Davidson went on to co-found the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama with her husband, Booker T. Washington. Kenneth Robert Wilson was born in Framingham. He is better known as Gingerfish from his time in Marilyn Manson. He plays with Rob Zombie now, who is also from Massachusetts. Gingerfish replaced Joey Jordison on drums with Rob Zombie. Joey, who just passed away at the young age of 46, was the original and best-known drummer with Slipknot. And if you are just finding out that Joey Jordison died by listening to this podcast, I am very sorry. Well, that was a bit of a rock and roll rabbit hole, and, well, I do that sometimes. Jody Messina, country artist born in Framingham, grew up in Holliston. Nancy Travis, actress from Framingham. 
Jordan Rich, longtime radio personality in Boston. He was also my original college professor when I started in broadcasting. He is retired now. And I was reminded by my friend Craig, who lives in Framingham and also plays for the great rock and roll band called Airport. A few favorite spots among locals are Jack's Abbey, Exhibit A Brewing Company with amazing outdoor spaces and live music. Also, the brand new Night Shift Beer Hall, which is right on the border of Framingham and Natick. This is all free advertisement. Framingham is also home base for the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation for Autism. It was established in 1998 by former NFL quarterback Doug Flutie, known for his time with the New England Patriots. I am certain that you've heard of them. And Lori Flutie, in honor of their son, Doug Jr., who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. Their mission, to support people and families affected by autism through several programs and initiatives. You can learn all about it at flutiefoundation.org. Laura Jane Russell was born on May 3, 1961, in a Chicago suburb of Highland Park, Illinois. She was one of five children. She grew up in El Paso, Texas, where she was an active member of her high school speech and drama clubs. Laura is best described as friendly, outgoing, vivacious, All of the things you say about someone when they are gone, or in this case, taken. But not much is known publicly about Laura, and I am sorry about that. After so many years pass, it's almost like their memory has been erased. And that is a very sad fact. Laura married Richard Rosenthal on September 29, 1991, in a courthouse by the Justice of the Peace in her hometown of El Paso, Texas. She was 30. He was 36. Neither had been married before. That is when she became more reserved, a word used to describe how Laura had changed after she got married to Richard Rosenthal. When people around the company they both worked for had heard they had gotten married, much of the reaction was the same. Good for him. Meaning that she would be good for him. She grew up in Texas, and I'd like to imagine Laura with that sweet West Texas accent. She also spent some time in California before she moved to Boston. Rosenthal received a bachelor's degree in accounting from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in 1977, then a master's degree in actuarial science at Temple University in Philadelphia in 1979. After graduating, he landed a job at a big accounting firm before moving on to John Hancock, a Boston-based financial institution, in June of 1985. It's there where he worked long hours and late nights with the focus on moving up the ranks. It eventually paid off when he was made a senior financial analyst. He was only one of two dozen men and women who held that position in the insurer's accounting department. Coworkers said he was somewhat of a loner at the company and rarely, if ever, showed a sense of humor. In 1990, he applied to Suffolk Law School, but was not accepted. He was doing well at John Hancock and was looked at by top executives to be brilliant with numbers, achieving recognition when he was asked to analyze the financials of projects and present his findings to Boston business executives. Laura Rosenthal worked as an assistant portfolio manager in John Hancock's investment department. She did attend college for at least two years, but it is unclear what she studied or whether she earned a degree. Laura left her job there after their second baby was born in April 1995. And they were excited when they bought their home on Garvey Road in Framingham. What was a very happy time in their lives, a new home, a brand new baby girl, was not proving so for Rosenthal, 
He was showing stress and complained to people at work more than most new fathers about his lack of sleep due to the new baby. Rosenthal grew up in Fairlawn, New Jersey, in a working-class neighborhood 24 miles from New York City. He almost always had a very serious look on his face, very little humor. It was Laura's charm that carried him in social settings, because he sure did not have any chops in that department. She was a Southerner. Southerners have a wonderful way about them, warm, friendly, kind, and considerate to everyone they encounter. Northerners like myself, we are suspicious by nature. And if someone is friendly and polite for the sake of just being friendly and polite, we wonder why. It's a flaw. But we have many other positive traits, I promise. Having grace under pressure, accommodating, making others feel welcome and comfortable is also part of that Southern charm. They take pleasantries very seriously. Laura gave him the constant attention that people knew him said he could not ask for himself. A former girlfriend said he didn't seem to have a way to express his anger. He didn't talk very much in the first place and would withdraw. People who knew them say they were surprised that they got together in the first place. There were two people who seemed so different. No one looked at them as a fit. Ill-suited, one Globe article said. People will go on to say many other things about Richard Rosenthal after they learned about what he did. So many were mystified by his actions. As were acquaintances who described him as weird and spooky. Not ringing endorsements, but nobody thought he was violent. At least no one who knew him on a social level. The couple often walked hand in hand down Dartmouth Street, near Boston's Copley Square, heading from their Marlboro Street apartment in the Back Bay to Hancock Tower. They met regularly for lunch in the building's cafeteria. And by all accounts, it appeared lovely and normal, romantic even. When something like what happened in the Rosenthal house happens, there are always people who will come forward with some information that is telling about the demeanor of that person. Neighbors and colleagues and other acquaintances describe Richard Rosenthal as an unusually quiet man who often seemed strangely detached and unemotional. They said the couple had an intense relationship, but not a violent one. We'll get back to that. One former landlord of the Rosenthals remembered Laura as a vivacious and friendly woman. Richard was the opposite. Friends said they were, well, ill-suited. He was reserved and non-responsive. One landlord shared an experience about Rosenthal and how he insisted on moving furniture into the apartment early, even though the landlord's baby was asleep there. He was devoid of any capacity for empathy. Disconnected, they said. A different landlord, one who rented them that Marlboro Street apartment, they had a similar impression. Rosenthal's face was intense. He always seemed tightly wound, like a coiled spring. While several of their neighbors in Framingham, as well as their former neighbors in Boston, said the couple kept to themselves. Laura, she was nice. But Rosenthal? Oh, he was just odd. Neighbors would wave, and he would register no reaction. One person who lived behind the Rosenthals, and one who lived across the street, both said they spoke to him one time and one time only. They thought it was a bit strange, but no one could predict what would happen next. Richard Rosenthal had no criminal record, no evidence of drug or alcohol abuse that I could find, and no documented history of domestic abuse. However, information on that does come up during the trial. 
It is difficult for me to believe a man just snaps like this. One report stated that Rosenthal told police he was taking thyroid medication that provided a tranquilizing effect. Like a relaxer? What are you talking about? The details of this case are graphic and made for sensational headlines in 1995. Laura Rosenthal's death is often reduced to the burnt Zidi murder. And because her violent end had none of what would be considered the traditional occurrences of a violent domestic situation leading up to her murder, like evidence of restraining orders or stalking, reports of abuse, or calls to police, we anticipate the existence of a rare psychological break and sanity. Yes, and hold on to that one, because I'm coming back to it. Laura Rosenthal was the mother of two children, Reese and Marla. Her son, Reese, was born a year prior, February 18, 1994. Though some sources said he was born on February 19th. Whatever the case, he was very early, 14 weeks early, and he lived just 13 hours. According to the death certificate, baby Reese died of cardiopulmonary failure due to fetal high drops. That is a condition in which the baby's heart never functioned properly. An infant suffering from fetal high drops is a swollen baby, too full of fluid. That's according to a Boston Globe piece that cites Gerald Lucy, professor of pediatrics at the University of Vermont and editor of Pediatrics Magazine. This condition has 28 possible causes, some of which are genetic, he said. Without a postmortem examination, doctors could not be certain which of these medical problems caused baby Reese to live for only 13 hours. And according to the baby's death certificate, an autopsy was never performed. And whether baby Reese's death was attributable to some sort of genetic condition is something that remains unknown to this day. After baby Reese died, the Rosenthal's took a two-week holiday to Hawaii to try to cope with the tragedy of losing a newborn, their first baby. Nothing could really overcome that kind of tragedy. Only time. All they had was time. They were clearly devastated, and going to a beautiful place may provide some temporary comfort. They were deeply traumatized by the loss of baby Reese, but they rarely shared those feelings. In their middle-class Metro Boston subdivision, neighbors knew little of them, and it's like they never existed. They both struggled to cope with the loss of the baby. Rosenthal was, quote, totally crushed, and walking around in a daze, co-workers said, It wasn't until Laura became pregnant with their second child over the summer that he seemed to come to some kind of terms with it. But in reality, it became increasingly more clear that Rosenthal's grief had turned into obsession. He was consumed with what he believed was a genetic defect that caused the baby to have an undeveloped heart and lungs. None of this he was responsible for, though. It was her. He believed it was Laura who was to blame for the birth defects that killed their newborn son. Rosenthal said he began a mental decline when his infant son was born with a terminal condition. He supposedly began to have delusions that he was being persecuted by doctors and was chosen as a messenger of God. Later, his wife was turning into a hostile space alien. We will also come back to that. Stay with me. They even sought out genetic counseling after baby Reese died and had more than one appointment with a genetic specialist. They had attended these sessions together as recently as one week before Laura was murdered. 
Marguerite Truesdale, a registered nurse and childbirth educator who taught a birthing class the Rosenthal's attended, did say that Rosenthal was very quiet. But Laura, Laura had many concerns. She did share with the nurse that she had undergone a battery of medical tests and was confident that this baby would be okay. More than a year after his son's death, and two months after their daughter Marla was born with slight medical complications, Rosenthal began requesting extensive medical records on his son. Over that summer, Rosenthal started with letter writing and phone calls to the New England Medical Center demanding records and answers about the death of their son, born prematurely at the hospital's neonatal intensive care unit. He seemed hell-bent on getting answers, like he wanted someone to pay for the death of his son. He was a controlling man who was having problems with his wife and family, blinded by anger. The last letter he wrote was to the hospital's chief executive. It was postmarked August 28th, the very day authorities say he murdered Laura. Assistant DA Martin Murphy described Rosenthal, a rising executive at John Hancock Financial Services, as a controlling husband who came to blame his wife for their infant son's death from multiple birth defects in 1994. There were signs that Rosenthal was unraveling in the days leading up to August 28th. That Monday morning, co-workers said Rosenthal clearly seemed troubled. He would abruptly walk out of meetings numerous times to return to his office during hours-long departmental meetings with senior executives and just shut the door behind him. He was extraordinarily distracted, leaving and returning several times during the day, one co-worker said. The same day, he asked a co-worker to water his plants in his office on the 56th floor because he would not be in for a couple of days, according to the police affidavit. When that co-worker asked if he was taking a vacation, he would just say, I don't know if he would call it that. There was absolutely no doubt that every single one of his colleagues were shocked by what he did when he went home that night. As police worked through interviews with co-workers and neighbors, family and friends, a picture of the Rosenthal's troubled and violent marriage emerged. A consistent theme had developed in the accounts of those who knew them, indicated that Rosenthal was often a cold, calculating, and manipulative husband who sought to isolate his wife from contact with family and friends. When they would take family trips to El Paso, Rosenthal would often schedule day trips to monopolize Laura's time and keep her from spending time with her family the ones they had gone to Texas to visit in the first place. It appears that Laura had few friends left. One source asked the police how many friends of hers had they spoken to. Very few, I bet, they said. What does that tell you? No one believed that what was to happen was the result of a man going nuts one day. This is something that had been building up over time. Rosenthal was obsessed with control, investigators say. Deeply troubled by at least one thing in his life that he could not control the loss of his son. As recently as a few days before Laura was killed, the Rosenthal's seemed fine. Home videos investigators saw showed Rosenthal interacting pleasantly with both Laura and baby Marla. Rosenthal had recently begun attending services and weekly prayer ceremonies at Framingham's Temple Beth Shalom, even celebrating a Jewish naming ceremony for his daughter there in April. Laura came from a devoutly Christian family, but would occasionally attend temple with him. A yarmulke and a prayer book with a marked passage was found among the bloody clothes left inside his gray 1984 Toyota Camry. 
The murder of Laura Jane Rosenthal happened on the evening of August 28, 1995. Rosenthal, the 40-year-old's upper-class insurance executive, returned home from his job at downtown Boston to his nine-room home purchased for $330,000 in 1993. That is the equivalent today of about $620,000. The house in Framingham, Massachusetts, had a hand-painted heart on the front door that read, Home Sweet Home. Laura asked her husband to look after the ziti she was cooking in the oven. He didn't, and his inattentiveness sparked an argument. He wasn't attentive about anything, especially the baby. That argument triggered what would be one of the most disgustingly gruesome and barbaric murders in the history of Massachusetts. Okay, this is a tough one. And I'm not in the habit of giving you a warning. But this is a warning. Rosenthal strangled Laura to death in a display of what can best be described as frenzied overkill. She was carried to their backyard and eviscerated. Laura had been cut from her throat to her navel, and her organs were removed. Her heart and lungs were impaled on an 18-inch stake in a nearby garden. She was struck in her face and her head. Her right eye and the surrounding bones were destroyed. Her face was beaten with a softball-sized rock so brutally that it left her unrecognizable. She could not be visibly identified. And because they were unsure, she was listed as Jane Doe on the arrest report. It took more than a day to officially identify her. After this grisly attack, she was partially hidden under a pile of mulch in the yard. Then, Rosenthal took a shower, packed up their four-month-old baby in a car seat, and drove away. He eventually followed a car with a license plate, 357-B-A-N to a home in Hudson because he thought it was a statement about gun control and made very weird comments about 357 caliber handguns. That couple called police who found the baby in the back seat of Rosenthal's car along with a plastic bag full of bloody men's clothing. He confessed that it was blood and that it was overburnt ziti. He told them that he was having marital trouble and that he had an argument with his wife and that led to a fight, and that he was driving around to cool off. He didn't stop there, though. He added that he had done a terrible thing, that there's a name for that terrible thing, and that that name is murder. Police followed a trail of blood from the house to the woods and found the beaten and mutilated body of Laura Rosenthal. There was so much blood in the backyard that the fire department had to hose down the lawn to wash it away. They found the knife inside the house, the weapon used to butcher her. Richard Rosenthal was arrested, and baby Marla was placed in emergency care with the state. And Otis the Bulldog just came down here, so be prepared for snortiness. Once word hit the local news, it was all the coffee shop chatter. It was picked up nationally with witty headlines like Ziti Killer and the Burnt Ziti Murder. Laura's family back in Texas were rightfully appalled and disgusted and grief-stricken for a number of reasons, including the fact that she was mutilated by her husband. The Russells worked quickly to get to the baby and take her into their care. 
As authorities investigated the couple's relationship, a judge awarded guardianship of four-and-a-half-month-old Marla Kate to Laura's father, Patrick Russell, an El Paso contractor and trucking magnate who received temporary custody of the baby. Irving and Marsha Rosenthal of Delray Beach, Florida, received full visitation rights. Patrick Russell and his second wife, Graciela Russell, finalized custody arrangements later that fall and raised Marla in Texas. Richard Rosenthal was arrested for the murder of Laura Rosenthal and ordered to undergo 20 days of psychiatric evaluation at Bridgewater State Hospital. And what we learn is even worse. His murder trial began in October 1996. In Richard Rosenthal's version of events, that night, he and Laura Jane got into a physical fight in the backyard of their home on Garvey Road in Framingham. Laura hit him in anger, and Rosenthal broke her arms before going into the house to get a knife to kill her. Psychiatrist Dr. Mark Whaley testified for the defense. This chilling account of Laura's last hours by the doctor who had interviewed Rosenthal for 14 hours. During testimony in Middlesex Superior Court, Whaley recounted Rosenthal's explanation of why he killed his wife. He can say whatever he wants. She's not alive to defend herself. On the night of the murder, August 28, 1995, he came home from his temple. He had recently rediscovered his faith, and he went into the backyard with a prayer book, not paying any attention to her when she asked him to watch the ziti in the oven. She discovered he never bothered to check, and the ziti burned. Laura went into the backyard visibly angry, and Rosenthal told the psychiatrist she was flailing her arms and moving her head from side to side before she hit him with her fists. At first, he tried to brush her away, and then he tried to strangle her. This is according to testimony by Dr. Whaley, who said he then asked Rosenthal why he continued to harm her after she fell to the ground. He said something just got set in motion to kill her. It was the beginning of a war at that point, and he believed she would kill him then or kill him later. Next came the setup for his insanity defense. The doctor said Rosenthal was in the throes of a psychotic episode and believed that his wife was an alien intent on murdering him. Rosenthal became angry that this alien was posing as his wife and started hitting her with a rock. Rosenthal told the psychiatrist that he thought he was a wild animal and bit his wife on the arm, then looked around for a stake to drive through her heart to prevent her from chasing him. He got the knife from inside the house in what I can only describe as a frenzy, he mutilated Laura and staked her heart and her lungs. The heart and the lungs. Baby Reese died due to defects of his heart and his lungs. Rosenthal never came to terms with the baby's death. He blamed Laura. Dr. Whaley said that the fact that he did not try to hide the organs or bury the body was further evidence of his psychosis. Rosenthal's claim to the doctor was that he felt safer after the organs were impaled on a stake. The defense argued that Rosenthal was innocent by reason of insanity. Experts for the prosecution said he was faking. This is not unlike the case of Michael McDermott in the Wakefield Day After Christmas Massacre. He was a malingerer, a faker. He studied how to look crazy. And what he did to Laura 
was a gruesome expression of his obsession with the heart and lung defects that killed their infant son. In trying to understand his state of mind when he murdered her, investigators looked at his recent immersion into his Jewish faith and the interpretation of a passage marked in a prayer book that was found along with the bloody clothes taken from his car. That passage, in the language of the Old Testament, refers to marital vows. Sometime in the year after the loss of their son, Rosenthal began showing up at Temple Beth Shalom, a synagogue located on Pamela Road in Framingham. And it's understandable that when someone suffers a massive loss, that they turn to faith to help get them through. Several members there said they found Rosenthal's sudden and intense interest in the temple's activities odd. On July 29th, the congregation read a passage from the Book of Numbers, which dealt with marriage, and a passage that Rosenthal had marked in his prayer book. A footnote summarizing the passage said it concerns the solemnity and binding character of religious vows, and in what circumstances vows of women can be annulled by the father or husband. I gotta think on that one for a bit. We know he gave little attention to the new baby. He complained at work about losing sleep after she arrived. Not an average amount of complaints for a tired new dad. A lot of complaints. And the way they found Laura is a phenomenon experts call overkill. The exaggerated use of force far beyond what is necessary to end a person's life. Homicide and forensic consultant Vernon Jaberth called such cases extremely rare, accounting for less than 1% of all homicides. Overkill is a direct manifestation of anger, rage, revenge, and passion. And determining which of those elements was pivotal in the overkill depends on the circumstances of the case. We learn why. Assistant District Attorney Martin Murphy said that this is a case about an angry, controlling man who was having problems in his marriage. Their marriage had a long history of spousal abuse and marital discord. On the day of Laura's death, Richard had called the home nine times. That night, their tension reached a head. At about 8 p.m., Laura angrily confronted him about ignoring her when she asked him to watch the ziti in the oven. Defense attorney Norman Zalkind said the death of their son Reese a year and a half earlier triggered the beginning of a psychotic, delusional illness. While deep, debilitating depression is real, the loss of a loved one, a child, yes, it can send someone spiraling. I cannot believe that Richard Rosenthal just snapped one day. That's not how domestic violence usually presents. Their marriage had a long history of abuse. That night, their tension came to a head. That's not where this started for them. But unfortunately, and tragically, that's where it ended. The long-drawn conclusion is that they were not happy in their relationship, and probably had not been for some time. The Rosenthals got married in September 1991, but their relationship was far from idyllic. A co-worker testified that in the summer of 1990, before their wedding, and approximately five years before the murder, Laura came to work at John Hancock with a blackened left eye and a bruise on her left cheek. That co-worker asked Rosenthal what happened, and he stated that Laura had walked into a door. When the co-worker repeated the question, Rosenthal admitted that they had an argument and that he may have pushed her and she had fallen and hit her face. 
Three other co-workers testified that in September 1993, approximately two years before the murder, Laura was seen with a blackened right eye. One co-worker testified that she tried to cover the bruise with makeup and avoided showing her face. No calls were made to the police that I could find. No involvement from managers at the firm. No one seemed to do anything. And I have no way of knowing if Laura's family were aware of that kind of abuse. Rosenthal was deeply depressed by the loss of their first baby and became obsessed with his death. But imagine how Laura felt. Her first baby lives less than a day due to abnormalities that may be genetic. The baby blues are real. Those compounded with the loss of a baby are unbearable. And Rosenthal was not a supportive partner. He made everything about him and his grief. And he generally ignored their daughter and seemed to care for her only if he had to. In March 1995, a month before their second baby arrived, Rosenthal told a co-worker that everything was so difficult and hard now. That co-worker said that she interpreted this statement as meaning that he was having problems with his wife. Oh, there was definitely tension between them in the spring of 1995. In June 1995, Laura was planning to return to work and was feeling the stress of putting their daughter into daycare. And this was something Rosenthal was indifferent about. He offered no comfort to Laura as she struggled with the thought of leaving her. This caused stress for Laura for a few reasons. She didn't want to leave her baby. And Rosenthal controlled the money that she spent to the extent that she had to ask him for money before he left for work or call him at work to get approval to spend money. Laura was not allowed to adjust the thermostat without his permission. The tension between them grew that summer over his inattentiveness to baby Marla and his near obsession with the death of their baby Reese. When Laura found out that Rosenthal had left baby Marla strapped to the changing table while he left to grind coffee beans in the kitchen, well, she was angry. Then, in August, the month Laura was murdered, Rosenthal had talked to her about wanting to have another baby, despite the fact that another pregnancy would entail an invasive, painful procedure for Laura. What it was, I am not clear on, but she was not excited about that prospect. There was mounting stress in their marriage that was centered on their children and how each one was handling the loss of their son and the birth of their daughter. All the while, Laura felt more and more isolated. She had decided to resign from her job at John Hancock. At the time, Rosenthal was the Director of Acquisitions and Disposal, earning $96,000 a year plus bonuses. That is the equivalent of about $171,000 today, according to my inflation calculations. That is a good living. Testimony after testimony culminated over three weeks of arguments. Defense attorney Zelkin told the jury of 10 women and two men that his client was pushed over the edge by the death of his infant son in 1994. His defense tried to paint Richard Rosenthal as a broken man who snapped under the duress of pain and suffering. That he was delusional and had a psychotic break. A prosecution psychiatrist evaluated Rosenthal for 17 hours and concluded that there was no evidence he suffered from any memory lapses and had a high level of organization that was not consistent with delusional behavior. 
The sheer fact that he told police after the murder that he did a terrible thing shows he was lucid. Assistant D.A. Murphy described him as a controlling husband who came to blame his wife for their infant son's death from multiple birth defects in February 1994. Defense attorney Zalkin had ordered that his client should be found innocent by reason of insanity because he could not distinguish between right and wrong. Prosecutors said Rosenthal was perfectly sane and faked mental illness to justify his crime. The crime was staged to make him look as though he had a mental break. And what professionals called overkill was a deliberate and craven act to appear insane. The Middlesex County Superior Court jury deliberated for more than 18 hours over four days before reaching its decision. A jury rejected the defendant's claim that he lacked criminal responsibility and convicted him of murder in the first degree based on extreme atrocity and cruelty. He was immediately sentenced under state law to life imprisonment without parole. Richard Rosenthal, W61584, convicted murderer, is 66 years old and lives at the Old Colony Correctional Resort in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Once the trials are over and the defendant is sent away, that is when the family of the loved one who's been taken, that's when they are left to put the pieces back together and try to move forward. Laura Jean Russell's family took baby Marla Kate, who was just four months old when her mother was taken from her, by her father. She had the love and protection of her grandparents. Laura's dad, Patrick, and his wife, Garciella, how lucky she was to have them. Laura Jean Russell was laid to rest in the memory gardens of the valley in Santa Teresa, New Mexico. She would have celebrated her 60th birthday on May 3rd of this year. Imagine a big party surrounded by her family and friends. Marla Kate by her side watching her blow out her candles on her birthday cake. Thank you for listening. This is Crime of the Truest Kind. I'm your host, Angel Wood. I created the podcasts, I write the podcasts, I record the podcast, I edit the podcast, and I deliver the podcast to you. It is a lot of work. I do enjoy it, but it does take time. So thank you for your patience. This is episode 24. I do plan on releasing episode 25 before I take a break, a summer break. I am going on vacation in the beautiful state of Maine, and I am so looking forward to it. So please follow the show online at Crime of the Truest Kind, on Facebook, on Instagram, at Truest Kind, on Twitter, on TikTok, on Buy Me a Coffee. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Oh, I've got so much, so much media. Everything about the show at crimeofthetruestkind.com. On behalf of myself and Otis the Bulldog and all the dogs in the house, thank you for listening. Until we meet again. Lock your goddamn doors.